Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to dive into the world of cybersecurity for enterprises, and more precisely, looking at some numbers, specifically dollars. If you're in the U.S., of course, it could be euros someplace else. But if you're part of a business, you're going to hear people ask these three crucial questions. Number one, which protections will we start with? Number two, which tools will be needed to implement these protections? And then number three, how much will an implementation cost? Now, if this catches your attention, you're in the right place. This episode is going to address that and other things when we're going to shed some light on these crucial questions. But first, let's listen to a word from our sponsor. Risk 360 is a cybersecurity technology and consulting firm that works with high-growth technology firms to help leaders build, manage, and certify security, privacy, and compliance programs. They publish weekly thought leadership, webinars, and downloadable resources such as their PCI Compliance Program Workbook, a business case for SOC 2, ISO 27001, The Path to Certification, and many more titles, all available for download at no charge at risk360.com slant resources. Let Risk360 help you build your business case to achieve certification compliance. That's R-I-S-K-3-S-I-X-T-Y.com. Well, first, let's talk about a trusted framework that we call the CIS Critical Security Controls. And it's probably one of the most accepted standards that's used in the cybersecurity industry along things like the NIST Cybersecurity Framework or ISO 27001. Now, the current version 8, which was published in May of 2021, shows a set of 18 safeguards that enterprises can use to defend against cyber threats. And for years, it contained 20 controls and was hosted by SANS because, well, SANS had a lot more bandwidth than the Center for Internet Security, which is a nonprofit, and hence the nickname the SANS 20 Critical Controls. I recall a couple of years before version 8, we're talking about changing the number, and they worked really hard to drop that 20 number. Also, SANS worked hard to drop the word SANS out of it, not because they weren't proud of the input that instructors like James Tarala had into those controls as a volunteer or SANS's willingness to host it, but more to the point that, well, it was considered to be a bit of an impediment to implementation. Think of it this way. If you work for Ford Motor Corporation and you're trying to improve your manufacturing techniques and the General Motors Manufacturing Excellence Technique book is the way to go, you're probably going to have a hard time justifying to your management why you're going to use a competitor. But if you strip that competitor's name and it said North American Manufacturing Excellence Guide, you'd probably be good with it. So CIS, Center for Internet Security, hosts these things directly. You can go to cisecurity.org, and it's a tremendous repository of useful information, including, of course, these critical controls. Now, today of those 18 controls, the first five are going to be, one, inventory and control of enterprise assets. Basically, know what you've got in your enterprise. If you don't even know what's in there, how can you protect it? Number two, inventory control of software assets. If you don't know what's running on your systems, how can you protect it? I mean, this is kind of basic hygiene, but we can start to see that these are making sense in disorder. Number three, data protection. Number four, secure configuration of enterprise assets and software. And then number five, account management. And then it continues on. Now, prior editions listed controls in sequence to prioritize cybersecurity activities, and to a certain extent, this is still the case. Now, up until version 7 of the control set, the first six CIS controls were considered basic, and they were referred to as cyber hygiene. 
Now, the basic controls in version 7 were, number one, inventory and control of hardware assets. Sounds pretty similar. Number two, inventory and control of software assets. Also about the same thing. But here, number three, continuous vulnerability management. Didn't sound like what we hear today. Or four, controlled use of administrative privileges. Also not really in the top five today. And secure configuration for hardware and software on mobile devices, laptops, workstations, and servers. Sort of been translated number four, secure configuration of enterprise assets and software. And then number six, maintenance, monitoring, and analysis of audit logs, which again, maybe kind of sort of fits into data protection, but back then audit logs were considered to be, of course, very, very important in what you're doing. And they're not quite the same as the priorities today. So what we found then is that it is evolving over time. Our risks change, our threats change, and as a result, our appropriate responses need to change. And the Center for Net Security, and particularly these control sets, are an excellent way to stay on top of things. Now, smaller enterprises often struggle with completing some of these early safeguards, and, and they never really move down the list to the bottom, and therefore they neglected to adequately protect their environment. Okay, because I'd even heard speakers and even written articles, writers who said they insisted you had to complete each control in order before moving on to the next one. That's wrong, by the way. That's somewhat like stating if your automobile brakes aren't working properly, then don't bother wearing your seatbelt if you do drive. Anyway, starting with version 7.1, the prior version, the document parses controls into three sets called implementation groups. Now, implementation group one is designed to be feasible to implement in small to medium-sized enterprises to protect IT assets and personnel. At this level of complexity, the primary concern is keeping the business operational. Data sensitivity is focused primarily on employee and financial information. And there's 56 safeguards that are called out in implementation group one. And they're designed to work in conjunction with a small or home office or commercial office shelf, what we call COTS, hardware and software, and really represent a minimum standard of information security for all enterprises. Now, these groups are cumulative. So when we get to information group two, it's for enterprises that employ individuals responsible for managing and protecting IT infrastructure. And these enterprises have multiple departments with different risk profiles, often the regulatory or compliance burdens and protection of sensitive client or enterprise information is paramount to avoid loss of public confidence in the event of a breach. Now, these 130 safeguards which will include, of course, all the ones that were in implementation group one, help teams cope with increased operational complexity, and they may require enterprise-grade technology and specialized expertise. Implementation group three is for mature enterprises that have a range of cybersecurity experts with specialization in areas such as risk management or penetration testing and application security. And regulatory and compliance oversight is kind of a given at this point, and confidentiality, integrity, and even availability are all priorities. And implementation group three or IG3 enterprise might cause significant harm to the public welfare. So these 153 safeguards are designed to help the organization be resistant to even targeted attacks from sophisticated adversaries. Now, why split it that way? Now, this segmentation reflects the fact that small companies don't have the same level of resources that a large company would have to apply safeguards. And this makes sense. A five-person cyber team won't be able to manage and run and operate as many cybersecurity tools as a 500-person team. Now, does this mean that a five-person team is worse off? Not necessarily. A smaller company 
doesn't have as many services or people to protect, and probably don't have dedicated state-sponsored cyber actors targeting them, so their risk profile is generally smaller. Now let's take an example of uh, first control, control one, inventory and control of enterprise assets. All right, this is part of the CIS control set, the first one primarily. It contains five safeguards, two of which are prescribed for IG-1, four for IG-2, and all five for IG-3. As you can see, these are cumulative. Now, establish and maintain detailed enterprise asset inventory and address unauthorized assets are the IG-1 safeguards. And if you think about it, that's foundational. Utilize an active discovery tool and use dynamic host configuration protocol or DHCP logging to update enterprise asset inventory are added for IG-2 in addition to, of course, the for two that are prescribed in IG-1. And the last safeguard, use a passive asset discovery tool, comes into play for IG-3. Now, if you are a new CISO for a small or mid-sized enterprise, you can use this cost of cyber defense document as a guide as to what software and hardware tools you should be considering and which ones you should perhaps not be buying, no matter how cool the tchotchkes are that you picked up at Black Hat or RSA. It might simply mean that that type of a tool or asset is better suited for a larger enterprise. Now, for many small to medium enterprises, what we call SMEs, starting with safeguards from implementation group one is a great phase one uplift from nothing, really. These safeguards are designed to protect against common threats and are a solid foundation for more advanced security measures. What tools might be needed to put these safeguards into action? It's a mix of options. Commercial tools, open source solutions, build your own, or they may be bundled into existing IT products and it's just a matter of turning them on. Or perhaps like some Microsoft options, you pay a little bit extra for them to work and then boom, off they go. Always look though at the total cost of ownership. The sum of the developer, licensing, hosting, and maintenance costs of an application is probably a good ballpark estimate of the total application cost. Now, even though open source may have zero licensing fees, it might actually kill you on the developer costs to maintain the tool if you have to do an awful lot of work with it. So compare that to commercial tools where you definitely have to look hard at pricing to make sure you're getting your money's worth and not just paying for a brand name. Now, this is where a new document published by the Center for Internet Security comes in. They released it in August of 2023, version 1.0 of a white paper, and it's called The Cost of Cyber Defense CIS Controls Implementation Group 1. Now, quoting from the beginning of the document, how to use this guide, this guide has four main sections. The first section describes our methodology for estimating the cost of implementing IG-1 for enterprises of different sizes. The second section briefly discusses the safeguards themselves. The third section outlines the IG-1 enterprise profiles. The fourth section identifies the types of tools needed to implement the safeguards. And the fifth section estimates the cost of deploying the tools for the three different IG-1 enterprise profiles. Okay, four, five, okay. Sounds like Monty Python, the Holy Grail. In any case, if you didn't catch that reference, don't worry about it. But the fact that that was the only problem I could find in the document isn't so bad. But do take issue with some of the content, which we'll get to in a moment. Now, if you remember our three questions from the beginning of the episode, you'll see that we actually borrow those from the executive summary. Remember what they are? 
which protections will we start with? Which tools will be needed to implement these protections? And how much will an implementation cost? Now, to answer this final question on cost, the document offers a methodology that starts with the basics. First, they divide the controls into 10 categories of activities. I'm going to list them for you because think about this for a moment. Asset management, data management, secure configurations, account and access control management, vulnerability management, log management, malware defense, data recovery, security training, and incident response. Now, these are not exactly the 18 critical controls. In fact, what they do is they take some of the safeguards that are in the different controls and cross map them into those 10 different categories of activities. And so that once this is done, they'll map these safeguards to the tool types, such as enterprise and software asset management, then determine the general cost of each tool, recognizing that vendors don't use the same measurement as standard as their competition. For example, one might be priced by device, another by user, and yet perhaps another by the actual usage. And so for simplification, the document creates three hypothetical enterprise profiles for IG1. And implementation group profiles could be tier one, tier two, or tier three. Now you can estimate in which tier you fall based on measures such as sector, revenue, employee account. And for example, tier one can be up to 10 employees, an IT staff of one, up to two servers, perhaps 12 workstations, and a cybersecurity budget under $50,000. So those are fairly small organizations. Tier two could be up to 100 employees, two IT staff, five servers, 115 total systems, and $500,000 in a cybersecurity budget. Okay. And then tier three could be up to 999 employees, 10 IT staff, 50 servers, 1,149 workstations, and a $5 million in budget. Now, those are kind of rough cuts at the edges there, but also if you're bigger than that, then you're reading the wrong document. Now, by the way, just so you kind of understand how we get these numbers, they arbitrarily assign 5% of annual revenue to the IT budget, then 1% of annual revenue of the corporation to the cybersecurity budget, which has been about 20% of the IT budget. Now, adjust according to your circumstances. If you have an unusually large cybersecurity budget compared to these standards, then you can probably buy more, obviously. Now, these are not hard and fast rules. It's your responsibility to correctly fit your organization into the appropriate tier. And now comes the hard part, but this is already done for you. Obtain pricing for over 200 vendor-specific tools based on the enterprise profile attributes, looking at one, two, and three tiers, and then more licenses or more data or more users or whatever. Now note that this research is not totally exhaustive. There are other solutions, including Roll Your Own, that are not gonna be reflected in this document. But what an excellent starting point to estimate costs rather than just going through your goodie bag from Black Hat or responding to all the dozens of emails you're most certainly getting if you let your badge get stand at the vendor's showcase. Now. Don't throw that stuff out though, because this document does not get into vendor-specific pricing. Your actual price may be what you negotiate. It's a little negotiating tip. I, I just uh, made a vendor purchase on the 31st of August. And the sales rep, to get the deal to close by the end of the month, threw in some valuable extras that I had not been 
priced in there. He's like, oh, actually, this is very helpful. But he said, I got to close it this month. So end of the month, end of the quarter, end of the year, if you know the fiscal year, is usually a time when you get the best deal. I remember years ago, I was doing seminars for Cisco and John Stewart, who is a chief security officer. We had worked together, done a lot of stuff together. And he had said that a huge percentage of their deals close basically on the last day of the quarter. Everybody out there seems to know that that's when they can squeeze your reps the hardest to get the most discount. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that that's an ideal strategy. It certainly isn't if you're in sales that your customers do that, uh, but recognize that if money is tight and you have a little bit of time delay and flexibility, there are some opportunities for that in terms of being able to perhaps get slightly better concessions from your vendors. But now you've got a good feel for what you do or do not need based upon what we have here in this document, and then roughly how much a vendor is going to charge. So if, for example, you assess yourself as a tier two enterprise and decide you need anti-malware software, then you go into the chart and you look at there and it says your vendor costs can range from $2,999 to $7,199. Now, if your vendor is quoting you at $7,199, you now know where their pricing stands relative to the competition. Now, maybe that solution is so superior that you want to pay that price, but at least you know what it fits relative to what's out there. Now, please remember, that the total cost of ownership isn't just about buying the tools. Think about the cost of a free puppy, right? Purchases cheap, overall cost could be extensive. It's also about budgeting for labor and updates and hardware, virtual assets, training, license renewals, integration, testing, consulting, advertising, perhaps even more. See, cybersecurity ends up being a comprehensive investment. So let's take a look at some real numbers here. But first, Let's listen to a word from our sponsor. Today's CISO Tradecraft is sponsored by C-Prime, offering advanced tech training for exceptional teams. Experience hands-on lab-driven classes in just two days, enhancing your skills for immediate on-the-job impact. Discover the thought-after three-day Microsoft Power BI training, empowering you to craft dashboards, integrate data, and perform swift statistical analysis. Visit cprime.com slash train, use the code CPRIMEPOD for 15% off, and elevate your expertise. That's cprime.com slash train. We go back to our document, The Cost of Cyber Defense. We look at Table 3 on page 8, and it puts all these numbers into a single matrix. And it provides cost ranges for all three tiers, small, medium, large, if you will, including no cost, low cost and high cost estimates across each of the 10 categories that I mentioned earlier. Now, let's examine a tier two organization and drill down a little bit. If you remember, that's between 10 and 100 total employees with an IT staff of one or two and annual revenue between five and $50 million. Now, if we remember our 1% rule above, that means that the maximum cyber budget for organization that side is probably around $500,000, plus or minus. Now, there may be some overlap between IT and cyber budgets. For example, identity management and access control may fall under the IT budget. Now, if you're clever, convince IT to buy as many of the tools you need so you can stretch your security budget because they need them too. A little bit of Tom Sawyer painting the fence. In any case, let's go down those 10 different categories quickly and see how they break out. So the cost for implementation group one across 10 categories for a tier two organization were the following. Asset management costs between $690 and $3,900. And this budget went into buying an enterprise and software asset management tool and service provider management tools. Okay, 
take that down. Data management costs between 11,001 and 42,000. This budget goes into a data management tool, data disposal tool, and encryption tools, all of which we think of, yep, that's reasonable. Number three, secure configuration costs between 4,700 and 47,500, huge range there. And this budget is allocated to configuration management tools and firewalls. Number four, accountant and access control management costs between $7,000 and $39,000. Wow, another wide range here. And this budget spending goes to identity and access management tools, password management tools, and multi-factor authentication or MFA tools. Vulnerability management costs between about $850 and $7,200. This budget goes to vulnerability and patch management tool sets. Log management costs between about $600 and 10,900 and this budget going to log management tooling. Sorry for the laundry list here, but I'm just trying to help you get your heads around these things. Malware defense costs between about 5,600 and 10,800. This budget spending goes to anti-malware software and DNS services and server tools. Number eight, data recovery costs between 2,900 and 11,900. Again, wide range. Goes into data backup and recovery, security training, between about $1,400 and $3,700 per year. And this budget spending goes to security training and awareness tools. Now, the last one, incident response, the budget is, well, zero. And it doesn't mean incident response isn't important or everybody will do it for free. It's just that at this size of an enterprise, it's the planning process that is important for the incident response and maybe doing your own tabletop exercises and things like that. And that's not allocated to budget since hopefully your people are already on a salary. And this is how this gets accomplished without buying additional tools. So if we add all these things up one through 10, what's our total cost? They range between about 35,000 and $177,000 to address these 10 categories. Okay, well, remember, the maximum cyber budget here was potentially $500,000. That's an awful lot of delta between the maximum cost of 177 and the 500K. Yeah, but this is just for these tools. You also probably include in your 500K salary and benefits for your people, right? One or two of those, and that's not going to be cheap. And then when you figure it all out, it kind of all adds up to about the right point. Now, the three most expensive activities in an SMB, small, medium-sized business, cybersecurity budget are likely to be data management, secure configurations, and account and access control management. So those are the things that you might have to write the big checks for. Now, this is kind of interesting because it's really the first security framework document that I've seen that publishes a mapping of real-world costs associated with implementing a framework. Now, note that CIS plans to update this report as it collects more data on tools and what can be implemented in groups two or implementation group three for larger organizations. But for right now, we're, we're focusing on probably the walk before you run. Now, let me share with you some thoughts on the CIS study. And so we at CISO Tradecraft have gone through it and we want to commend CIS for taking the time to help inform us of costs because so much of pricing information is hidden behind contracts and NDAs that it's really tough to get real world data on this topic unless you do an awful lot of drilling and talking with reps and we just don't have the time for that. Now, if their pricing information is accurate, then good cybersecurity might be cheaper than we think it is. Now, there's a couple of concerns. One is the fear of these numbers at face value do seem a little bit low, particularly if you had like a $500,000 budget and only $177,000 maximum spend. Uh, and I don't see the raw data behind the report to see if there are any conclusions that they had made based upon the data with which we may not agree. And secondly, 
I feel this really makes a business case that not achieving implementation group one is potentially going to become a real legal liability. For example, I could see some attorney in the future making this case to a jury. The state of California has routinely warned companies that they'll be held accountable for protecting and safeguarding customer data. I don't know if that's how attorneys talk, but that's that's my attorney voice. In 2016, Kamala D. Harris, who was then the California Attorney General, said during her speech on the data breach that CIS controls are a minimum level of security that any organization that processes personal data should meet. Now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we have shown evidence that this company had personal data, and it was expected that the company would perform reasonable care of that data. Unfortunately, this company chose to be negligent in terms of safeguarding PII. They did not fully meet the 153 safeguards shown in the CIS 18 controls. And additionally, they didn't even meet the 56 safeguards from the implementation group one, which is a minimum standard of information security expected for all enterprises. And had they allocated and implemented a budget specified in the study of CIS control costs of cyber defenses, they might have been within the realm of reasonable care. But that being said, the evidence shows they did not. And therefore, we would like you to rule in favor of the following damages to our clients. And off and off and they go. All right. So it could potentially make for a compelling argument and lead to greater accountability across all organizations, including SMBs, if there's enough out there to say, here's what you ought to be spending. And if you're not spending that, uh, you might be considered to uh, be negligent in a court of law if you end up with a breach. Now, the third thing to point out is I don't really know if the simplification of the 18 CIS controls and reclassifying them into the 10 processes is going to be particularly helpful. And and it might be more confusing to some people than anything else. Uh, For example, CIS control nine, it's email and web browser protections. All right, pretty straightforward. Control nine has two sub controls that you need to implement, 9.1 and 9.2, if you want to achieve implementation group one. 9.1 says, ensure use of only fully supported browsers and email clients. Okay. And this control is actually mapped then to the asset management process for enterprise and software asset management tool. Now, if I were to buy an asset management tool like Axonius or Jupyter One, I'm not really getting anything I think that patches my browsers and email clients. So I think this mapping may be a bit flawed. I really wish they just would have priced the 18 controls directly versus perhaps creating 10 processes that might add unnecessary complexity and confusion. Um, let's continue. Let's look at item 9.2 and see if we can demonstrate that point a little bit further. So item 9.2, which is use DNS filtering services, we see that control is mapped to malware defense. Now, when I hear malware defense solutions, I'm thinking my head about tools like antivirus or EDRs, endpoint detection systems. But the truth is you're probably going to get DNS filtering through a proxy server like a blue code or a, a zero trust solution like Zscaler or a services like Cisco Umbrella or even installing and running your own network firewall. And these are very different tools. So I'm not sure if these costs are going to line up. And another issue to consider is fundamentally implementation group one still may not be correct for being a minimum standard of essential cybersecurity. Let me explain. If you were to ask me what the most common attack every company is going to encounter, I would definitely say phishing. And you probably agree with me on that one. Every business uses email. And so email phishing attacks are a mainstay of criminal activities and their tactics and their techniques. And so therefore, organizations should buy an email security gateway to solution that secures their organizations from attacks like email spoofing and malicious attachments. And note that if you implement DMARC, which is control 9.5, to lower the chance of spoofed or modified emails from valid domains in implementation group two. Okay, so 
deploying and maintaining email server anti-malware protections control 97 is well that's implementation group three and so this means that if i want to stop the most common cyber attacks just doing implementation group one here is not going to be enough now cis released another white paper called how to plan a cybersecurity roadmap in four steps this paper gives implementation group one, CIS safeguards, rate of defense against the MITRE attack sub-techniques associated with malware, a 77% score. It also says that implementation group three, if you do everything there, gives you a score of 94%. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm just doing implementation group one and I'm not stopping 23% of known malware, then I'm probably not sleeping well at night. I think this is why we also need to listen Kamala Harris's advice and adopt all three implementation groups to meet a minimum level of security. Now, of course, that comes with a cost and they've all come down to at some point in time, how do we prioritize that? You can't have everything. And if you could afford anything you want and you can write as big of a check for cybersecurity, give me a call because I do virtual CISO work and I can help you spend your budget. But short of that, what you're gonna have to do is perhaps in defense of some of those observations that I've made, this is a way to prioritize things recognize that we can't get everything. We can't pay for everything that will stop it. We can't reduce our risk to zero. There's going to be some level of residual risk, and that residual risk should be arrived at in an intelligent manner. And so by taking a look at the way that these controls are organized and sorted, by all means, let's take the value of this document and apply things in this particular hierarchy. Why? Because it means that the first things that we buy are probably going to be the most valuable. The second things we buy are very up there. And then the real trick is don't just stop when you get to the end because you say, hey, whoa, I'm under budget. Great. No, keep going. Now, at some point in time, you have to have a good understanding of what's acceptable in terms of your residual risk. You see, you start out with some level of risk and then you define acceptable risk. And that's typically executive or management. You help them understand what's acceptable. But here's the risk out there. As you apply countermeasures, you reduce your risk. Another countermeasure, reduce the risk. Now, once you've spent all your money or you bought all the stuff you're going to do, if you have a gap here, that's called your residual risk. It's risk that was not accepted, but still remains. And that's a future conversation that you then have with the boss, the board, whomever to say, look, we spent your money wisely. For the funds that you allocated, we can stop up to here. But if you really want to reach the level of acceptable risk, then we require an additional amount of so-and-so to go ahead and figure this out. And then, of course, you want to make sure that you get that number correctly. And so, by the way, if you're spending your money and you get to here and you have budget left over, do you keep going? Well, I guess you could overcorrect, but then again, it's an understanding of who can assign acceptable risk. The example I like to use is you might have a small hole in your pocket, in your trousers. And so if the hole is a size where a penny would fall out, but a quarter will not, or your money clip won't fall out, or your wallet won't fall out, and let's say the only thing that could fall out are pennies. We'll ignore for the fact that dimes are smaller than pennies, but is it worth getting it fixed? It's acceptable risk. Go to the tailor. It's 20 bucks to fix the pocket. I'm not going to drop 2,000 pennies in a lifetime, let alone wearing the same pair. So no, just live with it. Penny goes in there, penny goes out, bah, live with it. So that's the whole idea there. You want to understand that when you're managing risk, it has to come down to an acceptable level, not all the way to zero because 
you're only going to paint down in that 98, 99, 99.999 if you're doing things like, I don't know, nuclear weapons release codes. Then you really want to overspend on your security. So anyway, let's summarize a little bit. The CIS Controls Cost of Cyber Defense White Paper is an excellent document. It's a great start at moving a dialogue forward on security control costs. And you definitely should read it. It's not all that long. And I think the, the pricing for each of the 18 CIS control groups instead of the 10 processes, it might be a bit clearer to simplify organizational risk decisions because what you could do is a CISO, you come in and say, implementation group one costs $200,000 to stop 77% of malware attack methodologies documented by the MITRE attack framework. However, if we were to spend $500,000, it gives us an additional 17% opportunity to stop known malware attack methodology. So therefore, I am requesting an additional $300,000 in budget to enable us to potentially stop 94% of known malware attack methodologies. Now, that to me might make a lot more clarity for a chief financial officer who controls the purse springs of the organization to make an educated decision. Now, these numbers are notional, so please don't think CIS is saying 200K or 500K. I'm just using that as an example to explain a point. Okay, so expect New things to come out in implementation group two and three over time. I do not know CIS's um, schedule. I think it's a great, great document to start. We've got a little bit of thoughts that we had here in terms of whether it's the exact same way that we might have addressed it. There's probably value in putting it into these 10 categories instead of across the 18 controls. You decide. But in any case, don't ignore it. It really serves as a foundational document to allow us to go ahead and really for the first time come up with a pretty good financial estimate. Now, you might want to be careful about that because if these numbers look low, I think they might be, then you certainly don't want to go ahead and send this thing up to your chief financial officer who said, whoa, well, <laughs> well we've been giving you a $500,000 budget. And according to this, you only need $177,000. So I guess we're going to cut you. At the same time, if you are below glide slope and you need to go ahead and encourage additional spending, this could help you. So like anything else that's out there, it's nothing good nor bad about the resource. It's merely about how you utilize it. And your mileage may vary in your own enterprise. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show and please do us a favor and do yourself a favor perhaps and share it with your fellow security professionals because you're sharing allows us to help more people keep their enterprises safe. And frankly, I'd love to see more conversations on the cost of implementing cyber. Uh, give us a comment on our LinkedIn page or something like that. I mean, transparency is a great thing, but just don't reveal sensitive data. That's not the purpose here. Uh, but if you want more great content beyond just the podcast, they said subscribe to the LinkedIn page. We put good stuff out during the week, and we try to have a very high signal to low noise ratio. So all these posts are valuable and worthwhile. And then you get access to the documents that we identify, and we'll put links to them up there. And you can be one of the first ones to share them with your peers. It makes you look good. And also don't forget to check out our YouTube page. We're going to do more things like put content from the documents, such as this table three on this uh, document and some illustrations, et cetera, so we can make it easier to understand in the reference. It's great if you're out there for a run or a workout or driving into work and you're listening to us on your favorite podcast channel. Uh, but when we get to the point, we're going to enhance our YouTube videos with some additional stuff other than just me as a talking head. Uh, then you'll be able to get hopefully a lot more value from that as well. So thanks again for taking the time to improve your CISO tradecraft. I'm your host, G. Mark Hardy, and I wish you the best on your cybersecurity journey in your career. Until next time, stay safe out there.